Peter Nash from the University of Queensland and today I'm talking to Professor Geoffrey Curtis from the University of Alabama about his paper reporting the incidence of herpes zoster in tofacitinib users in combination with glucocorticoids and methotrexate. Welcome Geoffrey and thank you very much for giving your time today. Certainly so firstly, and I'm glad to be with you. Firstly, can you give us an idea what prompted this study that you uh, have performed? Sure. The main motivating factor was to follow up on the observation uh, first recognized in the large tofacitinib trial program that there seemed to be a somewhat lower rate of herpes zoster or shingles reactivation in the tofacitinib users if the patients were not on concomitant methotrexate and glucocorticoids. So if you are only on tofacitinib as true monotherapy, then those RA patients had a meaningfully lower rate of zoster on par with or even numerically lower than TNF therapy or conventional synthetic DMARDs, but that understanding was based on a total of only two cases. So it certainly was not very robust or reliable, and if in fact there was no excess risk of zoster, in the tofacitinib users, if you weren't on methotrexate and steroids, that would be quite important to know because I think it would lend additional weight to monotherapy with tofacitinib um, and might be a meaningfully safer treatment option um, if clinically that was appropriate to keep the patient in good control. Definitely. Can you just describe for those of us who aren't familiar with them what market scan is and just the kind of patients Medicare covers? Sure. So in the United States, as in many countries internationally, um, there are administrative or health plan claims data that are aggregated from a variety of sources. Of course, these are ICD-9 and 10 codes used mainly for administrative and billing purposes, but the benefit is, is that it allows one to aggregate data for very large cohorts of patients. So MarketScan is a large insurance claims database from large employers and health plans, typically younger, commercially insured working people. Medicare covers the vast majority of the U.S. population age 65 and above, but in fact it also covers disabled individuals, and rheumatoid arthritis is one of the reasons that one can get governmental assigned disability, and in fact the mean age of um, RA patients using tofacitinib or biologic users is sometimes even younger than 65, just because if you're disabled and you have RA, that might be the reason that you qualify for Medicare and that somewhat runs a little bit counterintuitive to people's perception that it's only old people. It certainly is, and it covers that demographic with about 95% coverage, but it does cover a fairly large proportion of younger people too, many of whom are eligible due to the fact that their RA makes them disabled. Okay, and can you just talk a bit about the rationale for your exclusion criteria, RA, AS, PSA, IBD, et cetera? Sure. So our interest was to really understand how the rates of herpes zoster um, vary um, according to tofacitinib use with or without uh, other concomitant therapies. But because there are a number of, of conditions that um, that might impact the rate of zoster or concomitant therapies that one might use if you have overlap or RA plus another condition. Uh, of course, we all see a few people that might have RA and inflammatory bowel disease. 
you know, if the rate of zoster in an IVD population is as high or higher um, than it is in RA, that would be important to know. And so we excluded people that might have conditions that would put them at greater or lesser or frankly any meaningfully different risk than a more homogeneous cohort of RA patients starting topocitinib. Okay, and I note that you um, tried to pick people with a fairly definite diagnosis because they're on anti-malarials. Do you think that might be a significant underestimate because we often find if the diagnosis is missed, people don't get their anti-malarials if it started too late? You mean antivirals for zoster? Yeah, I just mean, do you think you missed a number of cases because they weren't given antivirals, therefore they wouldn't have been included? Yes, so that's definitely the case. And in comparative effectiveness and safety, as in many walks of disciplines of medicine, one can err on the side of sensitivity or specificity in the absence of a true gold standard like medical record review. And as we know, mainly shingles reactivation is a clinical diagnosis anyway. So, um, you know, even if you're seeing the patient, sometimes there isn't perfect certainty. So the outcome definition is predicated both on physician diagnosis codes, and then we also coupled it with antiviral drug use, acyclovir, for example. So the, the outcome, did you actually have her zoster infection or reactivation was an ICD code, so that would be a billing or diagnosis code from the physician for zoster, for shingles, as well as one of the three antivirals that are commonly used, but that errs on the side of specificity. So as you're suggesting, I absolutely expect that there were some cases that would have been under-ascertained or misclassified, and in fact, depending on the age of the population, it usually is in the range of about 25 to 30 percent. So in fact, the rates observed are probably lower by roughly about a quarter or a third because we restricted only to cases where antiviral therapy was prescribed approximate to the time of diagnosis. Now, as long as that doesn't differ much by the different exposure groups we were studying, and there would be no reason that you would expect it to, um, your incidence rate ratios are not biased, but the, the event rates are probably even somewhat higher than was reported in the paper. Yeah, that's, that's what I was alluding to. Can you tell us a bit about the four groups you're interested in and, and the results of your study? Sure. So everybody has tofacitinib, and at least in the U.S. during the time period of the study data, the only approved indication for tofacitinib was rheumatoid arthritis. So beyond the usual methods one applies to such data like health plan claims data, the fact that everybody is starting a drug that mainly only has one approved disease indication, um, RA, um, is quite helpful. Of course, tofacitinib, at least in the U.S., has gone on to have some other indications, psoriatic arthritis, IBD, et cetera. But we didn't include those individuals, and the time frame of the study uh, made it such that that's not a big concern. So the four different groups that we were interested in, um, and again, remember that everybody is a new user initiating tofacitinib, were tofacitinib as true monotherapy, so no methotrexate, no glucocorticoid use. Um, that's one. That's kind of the referent group, the one that was so small in the trials program. Um, a second was methotrexate with glucocorticoids, you know, prednisone, 5 or 10 milligrams. A third is, is prednisone or glucocorticoids without metho, and the fourth is metho without, without. So if you think about it, you know, steroids, yes, no, methotrexate, yes, no, there's four combinations, yes to both, 
no to both, and then, you know, plus and minus for metho and steroids and vice versa. So those are the four groups, and, the, and every person day of exposure was time varying, meaning you could dynamically start and stop any of those therapies um, and still remain in the analysis. So, of course, as we all know, you know, patients quit taking drugs, whether rheumatologists are aware of it or not. They certainly do a lot of different things about steroids. Um, and so all of the analyses were time varying. The one requirement, though, is, is you did have to stay on tofacitinib just because that's an inclusion criteria. And if, in fact, you quit taking it, then we would just censor you from the study, much like a clinical trial where if you quit taking the study medication, then you're no longer in the trial contributing exposure to look for outcomes. Um, so you were censored if you stopped tofacitinib. Fair enough. And uh, tell us about the results then. Sure. So there were a total of 8,000 unique RA patients that contributed about 5,800 person years to the analysis. So what that tells you right out of the gate is that the median length of follow-up for each person is less than a year. And that's not terribly unexpected. Um, and there weren't a whole lot of differences between people, you know, using and not using methotrexate and using and not using steroids. There were a few. People with pre-existing liver disease, people with chronic kidney disease, less likely to be on, um, on methotrexate. Conversely, you know, people with lung disease, COPD, asthma, et cetera, other reasons that somebody might take steroids were more likely to be on steroids. The likelihood that somebody was on um, osteoporosis prevention medication was higher in the steroid users, thankfully. And so there weren't, but there, in general, there weren't big differences um, with respect to risk factors for zoster. In fact, in most clinical studies, there aren't huge risk factors for zoster after you account for age and sex and, and the medications. Um, there's not a lot of other strong risk factors in an RA population. We observed a total of 222 cases of zoster in the data, and again, we're, we're separating them by the four exposure groups. If you weren't on steroids, glucocorticoids, the rate of zoster in the tofacitinib users was about 3.5 per 100 patient years. Now, just to contextualize, that's roughly double the rate of zoster in any other RA patient population. That could be exposed to TNF therapy. That could be exposed to any of the other biologics. So in the absence of steroid use, someone on tofacitinib had about double the rate of zoster compared to any other RA therapy that we would use. However, if you are also exposed to glucocorticoids and the typical doses, less or equal to 10 milligrams a day of prednisone, it further doubled zoster risk. So no longer do you have a rate of around three and a half per hundred. The crude rate is more like six or six and a half. So it's almost doubled. And it really didn't matter at all whether you were on methotrexate or not. The rate was exactly the same with and without methotrexate. It was really steroids that was driving the incremental rate. So TOFA doubled zoster risk and steroids doubled it yet again. There were a few okay. other associations that were, that were observed, as has been found before. Younger individuals and men um, had lower rates of zoster, and then there was at least a trend suggesting that vaccination um, with the live zoster vaccine, Zostavax, had a lower risk for zoster. That was my next question. You had about 9% who had the Zostavax. Did it protect people from getting zoster? 
It looked like it did. The p-value just narrowly excluded 0.5, but numerically there was about a 40% relative risk reduction, which is roughly on par with what you would expect in an RA population based on observational data. So, you know, a p-value that's just above 0.05, but still in effect in line with what you anticipate, my interpretation of that is, is that it did look like there was clinical protection um, based upon receiving the live zoster vaccine. And this study didn't have many Shingrix vaccinations. Was it the wrong time for that to be introduced? That's right. The data source available to us um, would not have spanned the time and gone up to the very recent time frame um, at which Shingrix was available. So that was not in the data set. And in fact, as probably you're well aware, there is absolutely no data in an RA or frankly a rheumatology population of patients who received Shingrix um, on the usual therapies for RA or lupus or anything else. And so um, I suspect that in the US this isn't happening very much just because there is a huge evidence gap. We have no idea what Shingrix does with respect to the potential for flare of your autoimmune disease. There's certainly case reports of that with other vaccines, but since this adjuvant has not been used before in any um, large-scale population, and anybody with RA and any other rheumatic illness receiving typical um, immunomodulatory treatment would have been excluded, we have absolutely no data anyway. So I suspect that uptake will be quite slow, um, at least in the U.S., until we have high-quality data in an RA or rheumatologic patient population. Fair enough. And uh, do you think the uh, clearly this is a class effect for all jacks? Um, the zoster risk, as well as Asia Pacific, have an increased risk. Do you think that the Barry data, which seems to be a little different, it wasn't such a clear cut protection from uh, good sorry, a clear cut increasing risk with glucocorticoids and methotrexate with improvement off them. Do you think that's just a quirk of the clinical trials and the results will be very similar or we need to see a bigger study like you've done? I would expect that the baricitinib experience would be very, very um, generalizable um, from these results. In other words, I would expect that there is probably a meaningfully increased risk if you're on baricitinib plus glucocorticoids like in this study, I would expect methotrexate doesn't do much to increase risk and that baricitinib monotherapy doesn't meaningfully lower risk um, on top of methotrexate or other conventional synthetic DMARDs. So yeah, based upon the higher event rates in Barry, just like we see in TOFA, I would, I would expect we could extrapolate the results from this observational study to the baricitinib experience in those patients. Okay, fair enough. So for the practicing clinician, Given all the results that you've got, how should they manage zoster risk in their RA patients? What should they do about vaccination, timing? What do you do with your patients who you can foresee are going to wind up on a jack or you're just about to start a jack inhibitor? So I think you want to vaccinate them if you at all can based on what they're on. Now probably as we're well aware, it would be inadvisable historically to um, to give somebody a live virus vaccine on a biologic 
and certainly on a jack. That would generally be not favored. That said, um, I and other colleagues, including Dr. Kevin Winthrop, are um, in the process of conducting a large pragmatic trial where the live Zoster vaccine, Zostavax, was given to hundreds of patients receiving anti-TNF therapy to test that very hypothesis. Maybe it's not unsafe. You know, the concern is theoretical at best based upon the fact that you maybe could give somebody disseminated varicella infection from the vaccine. There's been a total of more than 600 patients randomized. We've seen zero cases of varicella or shingles reactivation in the four to six weeks time that you would worry about it. The trial is done with regulatory oversight and um, with a DSMB, et cetera, and ethics approval. So I'm certainly not advocating just going out and doing this, but a rate of zero out of 600 patients receiving a live vaccine, receiving anti-TNF at the same time is reassuring. Um, so that trial sure is, is still and on, these ongoing. these patients are on background steroid as well? Yes, they are. Okay, cool. Okay, so that's, we look forward to those results. That'll be very, very helpful. Um, so how do you manage it in your patients? What do you do with a patient sitting in front of you? Do you uh, miss a week of methotrexate, which seems to blunt response to a vaccine, give them uh, Zostavax, wait three weeks? What do you actually do with your patients? So if they're not already on a TNF or on a jack, I would give them the Zostavax. Um, I would at least talk through the possibility for Shingrix. There's been production and supply problems, at least here in the U.S., and until I have an understanding of flare data, I'm not eager to go rush out and give my autoimmune disease patients Shingrix until we actually have that data. So mostly it's just counseling and trying to minimize steroid use. No patients want to stop their biologic or jack, wait three to four weeks, get vaccinated, and then wait another three to four weeks and resume. So until we have data either from the pragmatic trial I just described or from Shingrix, where at least in the U.S. we expect to have a new pragmatic trial starting in 2019, I think we're at a little bit, it's a bit of a conundrum about how to vaccinate somebody who's already on a jack or a biologic. And at present in my own practice, we're generally not doing it given some of the outstanding concerns I've just mentioned. Okay, so we we'll look forward to your results. It's been very helpful. Finally, a take-home message for the clinician from your paper. I think the main take-home message is, is that you need to be as or more worried about steroids as you always are. You know, five or seven and a half milligrams of prednisone or prednisolone is not benign with respect to zoster risk. If you're already doubling zoster risk with a jack drug like Tofa or Berry, to double it yet again with lower moderate dose steroids NRA, I think is problematic. At a minimum, I think we have to disclose that risk, even though we may not yet quite know what to do about how to vaccinate against it. So I think that the steroid concomitant use with a jack is something that you need to be a little bit more cautious about than you ordinarily would. The number needed to harm is not very big. Um, for somebody on a jack and steroids. So try to use the lowest effective dose. And it was interesting that methotrexate didn't increase that risk any further. That was also a very nice point that you've made. So thank you very much for your time and trouble. Um, we think this has been a very helpful paper and we congratulate you for uh, doing it. Um, and we'd like to thank you for your time. And if you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, Detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. 
please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or any other podcast media and let us know what you think. We always appreciate some feedback. So thank you very much, Professor Curtis. Thank you. Take care.